Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today on the show, we are joined by a new friend of the program and wonderful individual herself, Harriet Hunt, to talk about the youth movement within the space exploration field and how those generations will have to handle space junk that has slowly become a concern among several public and private space agencies. As we continue to breach this new frontier and realize our future among the stars, I believe it's important to avoid the pitfalls that we have fallen into here on Earth. And it's important to realize the impact of being able to have a clean space and what that means for us in regards to, for example, safely launching rockets or keeping important satellites and, uh, of course, the ISS safe from space junk collisions, which, in turn could create more space junk as we talk about in the episode. Obviously, I think most of us can agree that this is not an issue that needs immediate action and there's much more important issues to focus here on Earth first, but we can and we should be setting the table correctly today so this doesn't become a problem tomorrow. Our next great adventure, because besides James Cameron and a few other people, who who wants to explore the oceans? But our next great adventure is the exploration of the great beyond and what's above us. And as we begin to ramp up that exploration, we must take the many, 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 many lessons of our past to avoid the problems we know will be forthcoming. The future becomes easier when we make the right choices today. And so I leave you with this question, which you can answer by commenting on the official episode post for Harriet's episode on our Instagram at watercoolertalkpod, What future do you see for humanity among the stars? Will we become a multi-planet colonizer? Will space be used to continue to improve life here on Earth? Has galactic war already begun in a galaxy far, far away? But what will space, or what do you believe space, will provide humanity? So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 64, titled Leaders of Tomorrow with Harriet Hunt. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. I mean, I still haven't gone through all my DMs yet. We'll see. (laughs) I have a lot in my Twitter DMs, so we'll see what else is in there. But mostly just like small things like that yeah just you know congratulations i'm glad we were able to connect on instagram because i was like oh this is awesome and like i said to kind of expand upon that conversation i had with uh dr shana gifford so obviously very much appreciate you being able to do this show now that you're in the viral sphere (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's funny a lot of people were like saying commenting on my tweet like nasa's not real you know like that kind of thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) one thing the one piece of advice I can give you that I think is just good for anything is and we kind of already talked about with your passion but always ask yourself why am I doing this and then kind of those haters and the trolls they kind of just slip off there's always going to be people that disagree with what you say but most of the time it's the people that you know I think they're struggling with something themselves and they're just looking for that outlet so it's never always completely directed towards you it might feel like it but uh, there's a lot of good people and Stay to the good comments. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely true. I've been trying not to respond to the bad ones because I know it's just stupid. But Mm -hmm. it's just a waste of time. And I mean, you're you're doing amazing things, and you will be doing amazing things in your career and a a long career. So you'll definitely like have people that will say you'll say the sky is blue, and they'll say it's not blue. It's not blue. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Harriet. Well, are you ready to jump into our first news story of the episode? Yes, let's do this. All right, let's jump into this first one. This is from CNBC Make It, January 10th, 2020. 17-year-old discovers planet 6.9 times larger than Earth on third day of internship with NASA. During his junior year at Scarsdale High School in New York, which I don't know if you know much about Scarsdale High School in New York, but a lot of notable alumni have come out of Scarsdale, New York. But Wofsukir landed a two-month internship with NASA. So during the summer of 2019, he traveled down to Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. His first assignment was to examine variations in star brightness captured by NASA's transiting exoplanet survey satellite, which launched from SpaceX Falcon 9, to discover thousands of exoplanets, which is a planet outside our own system. The program is shorthanded as T-E-S-S or TESS, and is a citizen manned science project that allows people who aren't directly related with NASA to help find new planets. Just three days into his internship, Wolf, with awesome name by the way, with help of other scientists discovered a new planet. I noticed a dip or a transit from the TOI 1338 system, and that was the first signal of a planet. Thrilled, he shared his discovery with his team. I first saw the initial dip and thought, oh, that looked cool, but then when I looked at the full data from the telescope at that star, I noticed, or my mentor also noticed, three different dips in the system. A high school intern examined hundreds of eclipsing binaries to search for planetary transits. Wolf was onto something. Something larger than Earth. The new planet, now certified by NASA and named TOI-1338b, is 6.9 times larger than Earth, in between the size of Neptune and Saturn, and is located in the constellation Pictor, which is said to look like a painter's easel, and is about 1,300 light years away from Earth. For context, our sun is 8.3 light minutes away from Earth, so TOI-1338b is the first planet captured by the test system that is considered a circumbinary planet, which means it orbits two stars. Hence, these types of planets are often comparable to Luke's homeworld of Tatooine in Star Wars. They are also often very difficult to detect because typical software can confuse them for eclipses, which is why human interns, like Wolf, are so valuable. Veseline Kostoff, a research scientist at Goddard, states, These are the type of signals that algorithms really struggle with. The human eye is extremely good at finding patterns in data, especially especially non-periodic patterns. After making history, Wolf Sukir is now thinking about furthering his education in the field at either Princeton, MIT, or Stanford, and hopefully thinking about his future among the stars. So Harriet, as you know, you're someone with interest in the world beyond Earth or how you can contribute to that exploration and understanding, how important do you feel it is for younger generations to be interested in those necessary fields, like in your case, aerospace engineering, and be part of humanity's next great adventure? Well, I definitely think that the younger generation is essential to the future of space exploration and development. I'm not just saying that because I am a part of the younger generation. <laughs> You know, aerospace is unique in like comparison to other sectors because it can be extremely unpredictable and it is so up and coming. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's really important for people who are part of the younger generation to help contribute to the development of those technologies that we're going to be using for decades. And you've you kind of have, you know, as we're talking, you kind of have a background in this engineering field. A lot of people in the family have been engineers. So, you know, how important was that for you at a young age to kind of have those, you know, role models to look up to be like, oh, this is, you know, what I could be getting into? Yeah, the exposure at a young age 
to engineering has definitely contributed to allowing me to feel comfortable pursuing it as a career, which is something I think is really important at my university. And we do a lot of educational outreach because it's so essential to start with that uh, sparking interest in early ages, such as K through 12. And especially elementary school students who are just starting to learn about what engineering is, maybe, or if they don't have parents who are engineers, they might not know anything about it. So it's important to bring up that interest at an early time. What kind of uh, outreach do you do with the program? Like, do you go into schools and kind of like talk about what you're doing and like what the heck this career could look like? It's a little different depending on what age group we're going to. But for younger kids, we'll do demonstrations. And sometimes it doesn't have to directly relate to, you know, aerospace. We can, we get liquid nitrogen and we dip marshmallows in it and they watch them freeze and then they get to eat them. Originally just about sparking interest in science. And then we got talk about what aerospace is how space exploration is really cool and exciting. Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and I would imagine like stuff like, I feel like, I don't know if you had, because uh, it sounds like you grew up in Illinois, is that correct? Yeah. So I don't know like your school experience, but I don't remember too many of that kind of experience where people would come in and talk about these things. Like for me, space, the interest in space and just that exploration came from movies like Star Wars or Star Trek. And that was more of just like the exploration. It wasn't actually like the hard engineering of how you get to the exploration. So I imagine being able to have those kind of outreach programs definitely helps kind of explain, all right, here's Star Wars. You you explore the stars, but hey, you also have to build the things that explore the stars as well. Yeah, I definitely didn't experience that as much when I was a kid either. I actually recently, my two best friends who are in aerospace and I, were able to join a rocketry club for fourth and fifth graders at a local or at an elementary school in Illinois. So we had to do it virtually over Zoom, but we got to help the kids build their little model rockets. And I was thinking the whole time, I wish that I had been able to be a part of something like that when I was a kid, but our school just didn't offer it. So it was really exciting to see that was being offered at the school and that there were so many kids who were interested in it. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, kind of what you perfectly said, I think it's so inter or it's so important to get younger generations interested in these types of fields. And I think it's also really important to listen to those kids. You know, I think someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, or Thunberg, she's not necessarily a climate activist. And she said it multiple times. I'm not a climate activist. I meant to say climate expert, not climate activist. I'm here, I'd rather be in school, but you guys aren't listening to the science, so I have to be here. And maybe I'm just saying this because I'm part of this younger generation, but I think it's also important to listen to those younger generations because I know, you know, experience comes with age, but I still think it's important to listen to those younger generations and not just push them off because they're young. You know, when people say we are the leaders of tomorrow, that's so true. Like everyone who is Becoming actively involved in these industries are going to be the future leaders. So it's really important to listen to us now and get people involved while they're still young because they will shape the future of the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, so before we move on, I have to ask the question, do you believe there's life outside our own planet? I need to get your <laughs> your thoughts. I, I definitely do. Uh, I don't know if this is opinion shared by as many other people, but 
I definitely think there is extraterrestrial life. I'm not necessarily saying that it's a big, huge alien that you think of like in a sci-fi movie. You know, it could be something really small, like a single cell organism. But I think it's out there. We will find it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I 100% agree with you on that. I think there's something, you know, yeah, it may not be as smart as we are. It may be smarter than we are. It may not as be as smart as we are, but I definitely think there's something out there. The way I see it is space is too freaking big to say that there's nothing out there. And I think I would have an existential crisis if for some sometime in the future they discovered we were alone in this gigantic vast space. Yeah, there's no way. There's just too many planets. Too many planets we haven't even discovered yet, waiting for 17-year-olds to discover them. But <laughs> it's just going to keep... Life. The more, the more you reach out to the young kids, Harriet, the younger they're going to get. Next, we're going to have a seven-year-old discovering planets. Then we're going to have a one-year-old. Then inside the womb, kids are going to be discovering planets. <laughs> yeah. I would like to welcome to the show Harriet Hunt. Harriet is an undergraduate student studying aerospace engineering at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Harriet? Welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. We kind of talked a little bit about it, but uh, I want to uh, know a little more. What has been the experience like for you in the engineering field, aerospace engineering, to be more precise? I mean, just the STEM field in general, like as you were saying, we're, your whole family pretty much has been engineers. So what has been that experience going into that field for you? A lot of my family are engineers or studied engineering, but none of them really studied aerospace. I'm at least a little unique in that fashion. But I mean, my experience, I've been very fortunate to have uh, incredible internship experiences, project experience, research experience. So I'm very fortunate to have the experience that I have had, and I'm very excited to see where my future takes me in the industry. Well, yeah, you've kind of had an interesting adventure to get where you are today, which I think everyone has a, uh, interesting adventures in their life. And that's why I like talking to people. But you were in a position where it sounded like, you know, the grades weren't there. And you kind of found a mentor that was like, I need to you need to get these grades up and kind of make that big change in your life. Yeah, I definitely went from someone who was a really great student in high school to college hitting me like a bus. <laughs> My grades were really bad at first. And they're still trying to recover from that time period. But you now I had a mentor in my life from NASA who guided me, pushed me to bring them up so I could get that position at NASA. And I'm very lucky to have had that kind of guidance and leadership in my life to push me to keep trying and put myself out there. And now my grades have been slowly getting better and better. So, <laughs> Well, if it helps, if it helps, I left college after my first year and I, f- I had a horrible GPA because I failed chemistry, which I think is the worst class in the world. I but- agree. <laughs> But I think it's important that you've you've obviously been able to find some success and you found something that you really love doing and you know you've been able to apply yourself to getting to where you need to be and that's an important aspect of being a contributor to humanity. I like to think that passion can take you a lot farther than people tend to think. I couldn't imagine studying anything besides aerospace because it is what I want to do in life. It's what I'm most passionate about. So this is the career for me. <laughs> uh, so in our conversation with Dr. Shana Gifford about space that we had last year sometime, we also had the opportunity to talk a little bit about the importance of women and minorities in STEM. In the US, I believe there's a 10% decrease in women getting a PhD in STEM compared to just like other f- general uh, studies. Uh, what, what's the importance of you or for you of being an individual in the field as a woman 
succeeding at you know such a high level, being where you are right now, and seeing more people like you in that field? Of course, there are many people who have said, "Oh, it's because you're a girl." Mm-hmm. Whether that's in a joking manner or seriously, some people actually do think that in the department, and it's challenging to. Try and feel like you're doing the most you can, the best you can, putting yourself out there, doing so much work, and for people to kind of shut it down and say, "Oh, it's a diversity hire" or something like that. And it's really important that we continue to break those stereotypes. I mean, there are as such a lower amount of women in the industry than men. There's also a decrease in the number of women. I don't remember the exact number, but a lot of women who graduate with STEM degrees end up leaving the field, whether that's due to poor working experience or you know motherhood. Women in STEM are 165% more likely to leave the STEM field than non-STEM women, and STEM women are 84% more likely to leave the field upon marriage and childbirth, according to a 2013 paper published in Social Forces through the Oxford Academic Journals. It's important that, you know, we keep continually working, especially this connects back to the younger generation, encouraging younger girls to help break that gender gap, also especially the gap in the number of minorities. I mean, aerospace is like predominantly white men. So no, I mean, obviously, I don't want to say much into the space as a white man. But I think it's important that there's a real importance for like everyone across the board to be proficient in these types of skills and spatial abilities and have the ability to, you know, I know you like to do more like the test and kind of working on the components and having the ability to build things and fix things with your hands, you know, especially as technology continues to to really grow at the rate it has, you know, being able to code and being able to build these machines. And, and these are all skills that there's no reason they should be gendered. I mean, in high school, I was in programming class. I was one of two girls in my, I took a research and design course, which was like an engineering class for high school students. And I was one of three girls. In college, there's few more girls, but the percentage is still pretty low. You know, it's, we're still trying to fight that gap a lot. And it is, there is no reason that it should be gendered the way it is, especially because some of the best engineers I know are all women. So (laughs) no, and that's obviously that's a situation like I can't, understand that situation of being in a classroom where, you know, you're kind of outnumbered, you know, to say, but I think, you know, you share that experience with just about every woman on earth. And, you know, a lot of these minorities that are trying to break into these STEM fields that there's only one or two of those individuals in a class or in a group. And it's tough, as you said, kind of even when it comes to age, you know, when you were doing your internships, it sounded like a lot of older people and a lot of white males. And so it, it kind of feels isolating in a way, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to feel like you don't exactly fit in. Mm-hmm. Well, one good thing um, that I feel like I should bring up now is that um, so through my Brooke Owens Fellowship, which is a fellowship for women and gender minorities in aerospace, uh, we get paired with mentors. And mine is Colonel Pamela Melroy, who is actually the fourth woman ever to be nominated to become deputy administrator of NASA. Part of her mission statement is uh, really to address, you know, NASA's diversity and increase the number of women and minorities in the field. So we're looking at a nice 
set of like leadership in the coming years for NASA to have Pamela Melroy as the deputy administrator. Um, cause she is a huge proponent. I mean, she's part of this Brooke Owens fellowship. She's talked about how she wants to increase the diversity at NASA. So I'm hoping that will help spark good leadership and mentorship and inspiration for younger girls. Yeah. I love that. And yeah, I, definitely agree. It's one of those things where you're back to the outreach thing. If you're reaching out to people, they should feel comfortable. I just like space. I want to learn more about space. It doesn't matter who I am, what I look like, who I like, what I believe in. If you like something, you should have the opportunity, at least I'll speak to America, that you can go out and do that. Mm -hmm. Well, Harriet, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to the charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Harriet, your charity of choice for today's episode is Stan.Earth. Do you mind explaining a bit about what kind of work they do within the environmental space and how they've been challenging corporations and governments to treat people and the greater environment with respect since 2000. So this is an organization that I have been volunteering for for a couple months now, so that's why I chose it. Uh, and they are dedicated to kind of doing grassroots, like lobbying, reaching out to organizations, corporate people uh, working to make the world just more environmentally friendly. So volunteering I do for them is about shipping and cruise lines, which are some of the biggest polluters of the water in the ocean. So, you know, they're, they're really, really great organizations. Like care a lot about the environment. And when I was thinking about the space debris, I was thinking about our pollution of our own planet. And then that led me to think about Stand.Earth as they are a huge proponent of environmental policy that will help keep our earth clean, especially our oceans. No, I, I mean, I appreciate it. It's the perfect transition into the next story. So thank you for that setup. But yeah, I think, you know, I was able to kind of learn a little more about what Stand.Earth does. And I think they're a, a good company that, you know, not is not just about educating people on being better and respecting the environmental space, but also holding corporations and the people who do most of the polluting responsible. Like you said, you know, a lot of that polluting in the ocean comes from things like cruise lines. I, I hate cruises. I don't know why anyone goes on cruises uh, in the first place to be just locked on board with thousands and thousands of people sounds horrible to me. Um, but it's important to hold those types of things accountable because if no one does, they just keep doing it. So I definitely appreciate you sharing Stan.Earth on the podcast today. Mm -hmm. But it is the perfect transition to go into our next story. So are you ready to jump into our final story of the episode, Harriet? Yes, I am ready. Talk about space garbage. We've now gone from Earth a few thousand miles up to space. This is from Swiss Info Science, December 5th, 2020. The world's first space garbage truck will be, wait for it, Swiss. <clears throat> It's later in the day of February 10th, 2009, about 4.56 p.m. GMT. So later in the day for UK and African listeners, not so much for the Americans and the Australians. The American commercial satellite Iridium-33 collides at a speed of over 22,000 miles per hour with the Russian military satellite Cosmos 2251. The Cold War that caused fearful American students to hide under their desks for 50 or so years because apparently that was gonna save you from a nuclear bomb? I don't know. Has just gotten a bit lukewarm. The two spacecrafts disintegrate into more than 600 pieces of scrap metal, which scatters at 20 times the speed of a rifle's bullet. Intergalactic war 
has begun. Now that's how. Now, Harriet, that's how this might have been recorded in history if this wasn't just a space accident. The Iridium Cosmos collision was the first recorded accident of this kind in space, but by no means the only one. Some of these space collisions are even intentional. The Russians, Americans, Chinese, and Indians have all destroyed one or more of their satellites to test space missiles. And these explosions have created thousands of additional pieces of space debris that could damage any orbiting spacecraft, including the International Space Station. And there is there is an update to the story, actually, Harriet. Earlier in May of 2021, the ISS was actually damaged by a piece of space junk, but the damage has so far had no ill effects on any of these space stations' operations. So, who is responsible for cleaning up the junk littered throughout space? Back in 2009, Muriel Richard Noka and her students at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Lausanne, EPFL, were celebrating the launch of the Swiss Cube mini-satellite, and while the first 100% Swiss-made space orbiter is no bigger than a carton of milk, the space engineer was already thinking about when it would become a piece of space junk, or even become entangled in space junk, as it was programmed to pass close to the area where the previously mentioned satellites, the Iridium and the Cosmos, collided a few months earlier. So now we're in 2012. In response to the dangers posed by space debris to Swiss Cube, Muriel and the EPFL Space Center launched a space cleanup project, first known as Clean Space. And now we're eight years later in 2020. The EPFL initiative became a startup, renamed to Clear Space, and was chosen from among 13 candidates to receive over $100 million US from the European Space Agency to clean space. In total, Clear Space will be responsible for finding an additional $30 million in funding for the venture to have a total project budget of about $130 million. Clear Space 1's mission is to capture space debris and then place itself into a re-entry orbit with the space junk. Friction will then cause the captured debris in Clear Space 1 to burn up upon re-entry, leaving space a tiny bit cleaner. However, no one has ever captured an uncooperative object in space, and you don't get a ton of opportunities to redo a capture when dealing with space, the sun, and limited control and fuel. Luisa Innocenti, a physicist at the European Space Agency, stated, We've all seen in movies an astronaut who, when trying to catch a tool, makes a false move and the tool disappears into space like a flying golf ball. It is exactly the same. 130 million US seems like an awful lot of money to pay to get rid of a single piece of space junk, but not according to Clear Space and the European Space Agency. The 2025 mission will be the first in a long series with the prospect of developing a spacecraft capable of disposing of several orbiting objects at a time. And there's more. Clear Space technology could also be used to refuel or make repairs to extend the life of some satellites. In the longer term, the company also has plans to assemble spacecrafts in orbit for long-distance travel that would solve the problem of the spacecraft being far too heavy to escape the Earth's gravitational pull in one piece. Luc Piguet, director of ClearSpace, states, Our goal is to offer low-cost and sustainable in-orbit services. Even though the Swiss and the European Space Agency are taking on the responsibility, it's a bit unclear who's responsible for older space debris and who should pay for its disposal. The space treaties adopted by the United Nations in 2002 speak only of the responsibility of states in the event of an accident and say nothing about the role and responsibility of private actors. Does that mean space junk is nobody's business, Harriet? Not quite. There's a difference between old and new or future debris. Now, very precise rules exist that space agencies and private entities must follow even if they are not legally binding. A satellite launcher, for example, must plan to re-enter the atmosphere after 25 years and carry enough fuel to manage the maneuver without outside assistance. 
Luc Paget points out, We are launching more and more satellites. Since 2010, the number of objects in orbits has increased 16-fold, and the new players are very aware of the problem and very proactive. So, the big problem is the old debris. And as Luc Paget says, it's now or never. So Harriet, as we kind of talked about, as someone who's a bit more interested in the testing, the hardware, the component side of engineering, what are some of the positives and negatives you see in a project like this? Well, obviously the positives are that, you know, it's very dangerous for the space debris to be up there. The two main issues are it's dangerous because of the possibility of crashing into other objects, damaging satellites or other missions, but also just the pollution, the fact that there's supposedly... 34,000 pieces of space junk up there in the, you know, what do they call it? The space graveyard. Yeah, kind of like that low space orbit or low Earth orbit. Yeah, so the fact that they're all just hanging out there, I mean, obviously it is our responsibility as humans to clean up after ourselves. I mean, space is the final frontier, right? And we're just polluting it already. So that's... (laughs) uh, And then the negatives, I mean, obviously every space mission costs a humongous amount of money. That's just inevitable. I don't know. I don't don't really want to speak to too many negatives on this project because I do find this to be a very important matter. Cleaning up defunct space debris is something that, you know, I've come across as a problem in my work currently at my current internship and one of my previous projects uh, at my university. So no, I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot more positives. I don't know, like, it's obviously very difficult to catch things in space, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So I guess the the thing I'm always concerned about is like, all right, do we have the technology to catch things in space? I don't know if you have any insight on that, but I think overall it is important. You know, if we're putting these things up here, we should at least be able to bring them down or at least be able to have a system to bring them down. Because I don't know if you've seen some of the photos or some of the artist renderings of what the satellites and all the space junk. And like you said, 3,400 pieces of space junk. I meant to say 34,000, not 3,400, bigger than 10 centimeters Uh, and about 5,000 satellites, 2,000 active, 3,000 dead, what it looks like surrounding Earth. But it is terrifying to kind of see that photo and be like, wow, that is a lot of junk that's just floating around. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, whether we have that technology, because my internship this summer at Northrop Grumman is actually sort of connected to this in a way, because I'm working on a project which is related to the robotic servicing of geosynchronous satellites, RSGS. So if you've ever heard of that, that's um, like kind of a program led by DARPA to help prevent satellite lives from being cut short by servicing them up in orbit. And so this is Project is similar to the route intended for space cleanup by sending satellites out with robotic arms so that they can reach out to other satellites. So this is technology that is being developed for other missions as well. So it's definitely a possibility. One thing to think about is, you know, some of the junk, the space junk, when a mission is done, they shoot it out further out of Earth's orbit so that it's out of the way of geosynchronous orbits for other satellites Mm -hmm. when it's farther away it's of course moving slower so for a satellite to catch something in low earth orbit is for example a lot more difficult than for a satellite to capture something in geosynchronous orbit because the iss is moving in low earth orbit it crosses the earth multiple times per day or revolves around the earth multiple times but something in geosynchronous orbit is moving a lot slower 
that is helpful because the space junk is mostly farther out. So it's moving slower, which makes it a little bit easier for the robotic arms to work. But it's still, you know, definitely a very nail biter kind of thing. You know, is it going to be able to do it in time? Is it going to be able to conserve enough fuel to do this? Well, that's I, I appreciate you sharing that. That's super cool. I don't know if you if this is part of what you're doing, but one of the one of the kind of things they mentioned is you know it has to re-enter the earth's atmosphere after 25 years is that possible like because i was trying to think about this i think spacex all of their things come down after five years i believe is there enough capacity to have the technology for something to be up there for 25 years and then come down the the ability to control it for 25 years i know nasa is someone who's basically has to not i mean beg but pretty much ask for funding every year is, is that something that's possible even to have the fuel for 25 years yeah so i think that you know they can set out these satellites and then after a certain amount of time turn them back on and then have them reuse fuel and in the meantime they don't have to be using fuel the whole time okay. I mean, we definitely do have the technology i, I have a tattoo on my arm which is of a satellite uh, called Cassini. And Cassini was uh, actually a 20 year long mission to Saturn. So the satellite was out there for 20 years at the end of the mission. So it was from 1997 to 2017. Uh, and in 2017 is when they used the remainder of their fuel to shoot the satellite down into the surface of Saturn and let it burn up that way. Mm -hmm. That's one example of a satellite that isn't left out there as space junk as they sent it in to burn up, just like this clear space project is discussing. So the, the, the capabilities are definitely there. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Interesting. And then I guess, I don't know, kind of your thoughts on more as, you know, more and more like space exploration, kind of getting up there in the space. I know there's some internets up there, kind of more as these companies pop up seemingly every week, it seems like. Do you think there should be more tougher regulations for kind of handling and caring for the polluting of low Earth orbit? And what was the other orbit you mentioned? Oh, the geosynchronous orbit. Yeah. Do you think there should be more kind of tougher regulations for all these kind of new companies popping up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in this article, right, it mentions that it's not standards set by the United Nations are not necessarily law binding. And definitely as, you know, as commercial space continues to develop with all these startups who are launching satellites and even these big companies like SpaceX, uh, it's important for there to be standards to make sure that, as we were mentioning before with the Stand.Earth, holding these people accountable you need to clean up after yourself, basically. Well, yeah, I was thinking about like, we have a tough time really having positive and stepping forward in the conversations when it comes to polluting the earth. I don't know, maybe I'm just being a little negative about it. But I feel like people do not give a crap about what's going on 1000s of feet above or 1000s of miles above their head if they're not giving a crap of what they're doing to the earth. I definitely agree. I think there should be kind of tighter regulations and really clear regulations that say, hey, you know, if you're going up, you're responsible for that satellite or for that piece of technology that does go up. And you're responsible for making sure it either you shoot it off in the space, you shoot it off into another planet, or it somehow comes back to Earth and disintegrates during reentry. Definitely. Because yeah, if you if you see, the, I'll have to send you the photo. But if you see that photo, you're like, it may, it's probably it's probably dramatized a bit. But it's definitely one of those photos where you're like, oh, wow, we are in a we're in a tough situation. And all it takes is kind of like what you're saying. All it takes is some big company that's like, hey, I'd rather get there first 
then worry about being space environmentally friendly or something like that. Because really, when you think about space exploration and say Elon Musk going to Mars, it's sometimes better to be first than rather to be right, which is you know a scary proposition. And I think the Russians kind of learned that with the space race early on. But you know, if Elon Musk gets to Mars and he even said it, people are going to die. History is not going to remember necessarily those people that die, but the fact that they got to Mars. And I think you can have a good balance between being safe, not polluting space, not killing people, but also having those types of historic things. I agree. And you're right when you say like a lot of people don't really give a crap. Some people don't even care at NASA, about NASA or space exploration at all. So why would they care? You know, we're littering in our orbit but i definitely am passionate about that space cleanup path that we're going at least starting to go down with especially with the esa program and working with those startups so hopefully we're headed in the right direction there i think it's interesting like i was a part of a group that made this tool for astronauts to use on the international space station so the problem we were kind of given by nasa is micrometeorite impacts which are really tiny little pieces of meteors. They're really tiny, but they're traveling super fast, which is the okay. same problem with space junk. Even a tiny piece of space junk, if it's going fast enough, can do a lot of damage. Yeah, I heard like a literally like a chip of paint could do damage. Yeah, because that's just it's definitely difficult for people to imagine, you know, just being here on Earth. But, you know, once these things are, there's a crash or something, if these things are set on a path, they are moving like bullets, basically. So our project was to design a tool for astronauts to detect these impacts on the handrails. And it's dangerous because not only is it, you know, puncturing the International Space Station, but also when astronauts are doing their EVAs, they can... Uh, well, what's an EVA? Sorry to... Oh, an EVA is an extravehicular activity. I think that's what it stands for. So it's basically anything that an astronaut is doing out in space. Okay. So if an astronaut is climbing down these handrails, which are only made out of aluminum, and there's a tear or a snag on them, you know, they can tear their glove. And that can be obviously like extremely dangerous. So, <laughs> you know, that's just one example of how a tiny piece of space junk can like, could like cost a human life. So I, I thought that was interesting. It kind of connected because, you know, it didn't have to be micrometeorites. It could be space junk as well, making these and extrusions. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I was kind of reading about it. And like, one of the things was like, literally, uh, a speck of paint going at the speed of a, a bullet can do damage, but it can, it, it really can mess up a lot of, like you said, it's very expensive to go into space and can really mess up a lot of well spent, I, I believe well spent money. And I know I know you're a fan of Spirited Away. Yeah. You got a tattoo, I believe. Yes. <laughs> and just that genre. Have you had the opportunity to watch the manga uh, Planets? P-L-A-N-E-T-E-S? It's about a futuristic look at the idea of like space garbage collectors. Oh, that's interesting. I have not seen that, but now I'm going to check it now out. Now you go. <laughs> but just regardless, just in general, do you see that as a legitimate potential future occupation is, you know, literally crews of people picking up space debris. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like we already discussed, because there are so many pieces, this is not something that can be solved with, you know, one or two missions, it's going to take a long time to undo the damage that has already been done. And that is going to be done, given the fact that there are so many other missions being set out in the future. I definitely think this is a career path that 
many people can go down. If people who are interested in aerospace, people who are astronauts, that sort of thing. Do you think technology could replace those people? Because you kind of you talked about the robotic arms on you know what you're already sending up. I guess I haven't seen the show either, so you'll have to watch it and fill me in. But I imagine it's probably safer for machines and stuff to try and capture space debris if it's moving as fast as we've been saying it moves. Yeah. So in the past, astronauts, especially like on the shuttle missions, the shuttle was used as a way to take astronauts to the Hubble telescope to repair the Hubble. But that's after the fact. That's after the damage has already been done. Repairing it once, you know, something's happened, an impact Having these preventative measures with the robotic arms to take the junk out of space before it can crash into something or do that damage is definitely the right way to go about it. And even if, you know, something happens and the like robotic arm is needed to uh, like be used to I guess, just repair or move satellites away from each other, that is definitely something that I think I foresee us going along with that path, especially considering that more and more companies are starting to work on that kind of robotic stuff. Mm -hmm. As far as like those companies working on, you know, this technology and kind of the private sectors, like what roles do you see like non-governmental space programs playing in the future of space exploration? I think that the increase in the number of private companies wanting to go to space is a positive thing. Not only does it increase competition, which helps us develop technologies faster, but it's also helping us advance our understanding of space exploration. NASA partners with SpaceX, for example, and they work together. You know, most people think it's that they're like pitted against each other, but mm -hmm. they're not. They're, they're working with each other. NASA uses SpaceX and SpaceX uses NASA. The rising number of startups is also interesting. Like this article said, this was started by a Swiss startup, you know, that consisted of like 10 to 20 people. I think that startups are also really important for, I mean, being able to do this space cleanup, but even if, you know, their mission doesn't involve something like space debris cleanup, I still think that those startups are essential to advancing our technologies. So I am a, I am a huge fan of commercial space and the private companies working and it not just being, I guess, a kind of a government thing anymore. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. And I think you've, you know, kind of covered a lot of points very well. It's I'm all for more the merrier, but in like a semi limited capacity, you know, when you really look at government-funded space operations, the ultimate goal for them is the furtherment of technology and science, which thus helps the furthering of society. And the private sector, they care about that a, a, a tiny bit, but that's not ultimately their goal. Their goals are to show investors and potential investors that their ideas will bring forth either riches or fame. And I know that's kind of a very stripped-down version of what their goals are. But if private companies can kind of fill in the gaps that, you know, a government funded project like NASA or the uh, the ESA can't, then yes, I'm full, you know, full steam ahead, you know, very similar to a conversation we had with another guest, Ray, about green technology and kind of what you said. If this kind of competition can create cheaper technology, cheaper space technology, everything that goes with space technology, like something like GPS, it's a free device on our phone, but it took a lot of different companies to get there to where we could have this technology free on our phone. Then 
I'm full speed ahead on that. The biggest worry I have is the monetization of space. You know, the moment we can successfully land and mine an asteroid, there are going to be thousands of companies that pop up overnight. And when that happens, like we, I think we can both agree on, safety and regulations will be thrown out the window for profit and riches. And then comes obviously exploitation and war and so on and so forth. So, I mean... Just kind of like the, the like the U.S. Constitution, you know, how we set this up or how it is set up by whoever sets this up, it won't be perfect, but I definitely believe there needs to be a good solid base to build from. Otherwise, space kind of just becomes the new Wild West. Yeah, just some permissions needed and requirements set by some something like the U.N. setting stricter guidelines as these problems arise. I mean, that goes back to like, the need for more strict requirements for cleaning up space garbage as well, too. Well, Harriet, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to support Harriet and continue to follow her on her journey, you can do so by following her on Instagram at Harriet the Carrot. Harriet spelled like carrots, but with an H. Once again, that's on Instagram at Harriet the Carrot. Or for all the Jack Dorsey stands out there, you can follow her on the Twitter machine at Hunt underscore. Harriet. And of course, as always, to make it as easy as possible for you, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So Harriet, I want you, and this is the connection to Psych and Dual Hill, just for a second, I want you to put aside your knowledge for a bit. Really answer this question from the heart. Don't think about the BS science and the classification from the International Astronomical Union. Tell the I would assume most people are now adults that spent mere hours before a science fair putting together a model of our solar system. Is Pluto a planet? Yes, I'll always think Pluto is a planet. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you speaking from the heart and not following the science on that one. All right, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Harriet, where we take the strangest and most interesting real-life news stories from around the world and, well, just trying to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Harriet, we have now gotten to my favorite aspect of the show, where I hand off the show to you for a bit. You're going to take the floor and you're going to close out this show however you see... Sorry, I'm going to choke to death, so you'll be able to take over the show completely. But I'm going to hand off the show to you to close out the show, however you see fit. Whatever you think needs to be said in closing words, the floor is yours. And take all the time you need. Thank you so much, Adam. Well, I want everyone here, everyone who's listening to remember that NASA did land on the moon and NASA (laughs) is real. And it is super important for us to continue working towards our goals of exploring space more. It's really important for us to continue to support NASA and our up-and-coming commercial space programs. No, I think that's perfect. I I mean, you know, we'll have to have another conversation to talk about if the moon landing was real or not. It's up for debate, Harriet. It's up for debate. Is the moon even real? We don't know. Uh, But Harriet, I very much appreciate the conversation. It was a a wonderful time. You are invited back on the show anytime you want to, to have another conversation about whatever. It doesn't have to be necessarily about space, but I appreciate the conversation. You're a wonderful human who's adding a lot to the world and I appreciate being able to meet you. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, listeners, until next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.